Utterly Moderate is the official podcast of the Connors Institute for Nonpartisan Research and Civic Engagement at Shippensburg University. Please visit us at connorsinstitute.org to sign up for our free email newsletter. While you are there, also be sure to check out all of our great research and resources. Please listen carefully, carefully, carefully. Christmas, everybody, from everybody here at the Connors Institute at Shippensburg University, everybody at the Utterly Moderate Podcast. I'm Lawrence Eppard. Thank you so much for joining us on another episode. That really pretty version of Silent Night that you just heard is by Piper Cole. She's actually a student here at Shippensburg University, and she's going to stop by at the end of the show and say hi. But again, I want to wish all of you a very Merry Christmas. I hope you have a joyous holiday season with your family and your friends. This is such a magical time. It's my absolute favorite time of the year. In fact, tonight, uh, my plan is my whole house is decorated with garland and lights and decorations. So I'm going to sit in front of the fire. I'm going to snuggle my kids on the couch and I'm going to watch George C. Scott's A Christmas Carol. It's my favorite version. And there's a lot of really great interpretations of that classic story. But I think Scott's is my is my favorite And this episode is not only special because it's our Christmas episode, but it's also our hundredth episode. And to be honest, that's not something I've paid a whole lot of attention to is, you know, how many episodes we had in the bag. But just recently, a couple episodes ago, I just happened to glance at the number and I thought, wow, we're we're getting close to 100. We should do something special. And what I thought we would do is we focus a lot on the problems that exist in society and how to fix them. And sometimes that can be a little bit negative and, you know, can be depressing. <laughs> and so I thought that, you know, on our hundredth episode, our Christmas episode, we'll do something uplifting. So today we are joined by author Johan Norberg. He's written a number of books uh, and they're all really good. One that I really like is Progress, 10 Reasons to Look Forward to the Future. In that book, he presents extensive data documenting how the world has gotten better over the centuries on measures like freedom and life expectancy, poverty, violence, food, sanitation, the environment, literacy, and more. And the book helps us not to be so doom and gloom. I mean, considering the data that he presents, it's pretty clear there's hardly any other time in history that you would want to live than now. So, for instance, in 1901, the life expectancy in the U.S. was 49 years, and it's 77 today. At the end of World War II, half the world was undernourished, and most could not read or write. Today, less than 10% are undernourished, and only 14% are illiterate. More than that, though, more than not being doom and gloom, I think the book helps us to identify the reasons why we've made so much progress, and to make sure that we don't stop doing those things. 
Now, look, there are still many problems that exist in the world, of course, and I would never want to downplay those. And this podcast wouldn't exist if there weren't problems that existed in society that we need to talk about and we need to figure out how to solve them. So those, of course, exist and we'll continue to talk about them. And I would never downplay the problems that continue to exist. But we also need to focus on the progress we've made and identify how we've made that progress and why we've made that progress and and continue to do that and to build upon that. One thing that I tell my students in class, I give them this example of an umbrella that I have in my office. So I have this umbrella in my office that I keep there in case it starts raining as I have to walk across campus. And it's a little bit leaky. And so it keeps like 99% of the water off my head, but a little bit comes through and it drips onto my bald head and it's kind of annoying. Now, if I am walking across campus and I get really annoyed and I say, gosh, you know, an umbrella is supposed to keep you dry and I'm getting wet and I throw the umbrella away. Well, now not 99% of the water is going to stay off my head. None of the water is going to stay off my head, right? It's all going to be coming down on my bald head. And so, you know, I, I think that's what Norberg's book helps us to do is to figure out, hey, why? Yeah, look, poverty still exists. Violence still exists. But why isn't it much worse? Why have we made so much progress? And let's not stop doing those things or misidentify the things that are working as the things that are the problem, right? So I think that's what his book really does is helps us figure out what's working in society, what should we keep in place, and how can we build upon that to get even better in the future. So for our Christmas episode, for our hundredth episode, we'll do something uplifting. We'll talk to Johan Norberg, Live from Sweden, next. Joining us live from Sweden, where it is six hours ahead of us right now, is author Johan Norberg. Johan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. All right. So I want to talk about two of your books, uh, your newest, which is A Capitalist Manifesto, which came out in September, as well as a previous book that I actually assigned in my courses here at Shippensburg University, Progress, 10 Reasons to Look Forward to the Future. Both of these books, like your other books, are available from Amazon and all major booksellers. But let's start with the book Progress. So you make the claim in your book that the good old days are now. Okay, so I agree with you, but uh, (laughs) many of our listeners are going to be very skeptical of that claim. So explain yourself, sir. 
Yeah, I, I can sympathize. I wake up in the morning quite often. I don't think this is the best time to be alive. But when people say that, I ask them, so when was the best time to be alive? And uh, there are diverse answers. Some people say, you know, 1950s or something like that. But then you talk to historians about of the 1950s. What did people think back then? And they said, it's quite awful. It's, you know, we've just gone through the Second World War and um, kids are out of control and politicians are corrupt and the world is a very dangerous, messy place. So when was the best time to be alive then? Well, lots of people say 1920s, back in the 50s. Uh, but then historians of the 1920s tell us that people in the 1920s didn't think that that was the best time to be alive because the world was a dangerous place. And in between wars, geopolitical tensions and kids were out of control because you now had record players and radios and cars and stuff. So people said, it's more like the 1890s. And you can go back in time like that. But in every era, people said, no, something is off. And I think that's because you always know that the problems people had in the past, we somehow solved them. That's why we're still alive. That's why we're still around, right? Uh, but we never know about present problems. So we need something else than just our feelings, our instincts, our gut feeling about when was the best time to be alive. We need some sort of objective indicators of how you live well. Things like life expectancy, child mortality, extreme poverty, chronic undernourishment, things like that. And then the record is clear. It's obvious from all the data sources I, I look at. We've never lived in a world with this with these low levels of poverty, hunger, disease, child mortality, maternal mortality, and, and so on. So really, if we have a, a time machine and we can go anywhere back in the past, just don't, because uh, it, this is not the best of possible world, but at least it's the best one so far. You know, I do a, a, an assignment in my class. And again, this is the class that I assign your book in, actually assign your book in, in multiple classes. But one of the things that I do at the very beginning of the course is I say to students, look, we're going to focus a lot on the stuff that needs to still be fixed because that's the whole point. We want to move society forward, right? But we have to take a moment to think about where we've come from and we'll talk about why that's important in a moment. But, and I have them do this activity where I say, just pick five indicators, whatever you want, life expectancy, infant mortality, poverty, whatever, and find me a better time to live in your own country in the past and find me another country you'd rather live in than here. And so there's certainly countries that compete with the U.S., right? But yeah. certainly we're better than we were in the past. And one of the things you point out in your book is life expectancy. So the poorest areas of Africa today, people live to be 53 years old. Uh, it's 77 in the U.S. It was 49 in 1901. Yeah. And, and so you think about the whole world or even groups like whether you're a woman or you're part of, you know, you're lesbian or gay or you're a racial minority, I, I challenge them to find a better time. And most times they can't. Yeah, no, I, that, that's a great assignment. And you, you notice that when you look through longer time periods, that the, the places on the planet which we think now have the highest levels of, of poverty and of child mortality and the lowest life expectancy, they're actually doing better than we did in the richest parts of the world some 120 years ago. And that's just astonishing. It tells you that it's not static. We can make changes. We can uh, come up with better technologies and methods to solve the problems that we care deeply about. I mean, the progress is astonishing. At the end of World War II, half of the world was undernourished. Today, less than 10% are. 
at the end of World War II, most of the world could not read or write. Today, only 14% are illiterate. And you look across all of these different measures, there's been vast improvements over time, not just small improvements, just drastic improvements on poverty and violence, uh, you know, any measure imaginable. So, you know, drinking water and sanitation and food, uh, freedom, slavery, gender equality, the environment, etc. You know, across all of these measures, we have seen extraordinary improvement. So I got to ask you, and this will this will tie into not only this book we're talking about now, Progress, but also your newest book, The Capitalist Manifesto, and then you wrote a previous book in defense of global capitalism. So I think you're well positioned to answer this question. But now I'm a little bit, uh, I'm in a bit of an echo chamber as a sociologist. So, you know, very leftist discipline, very activist discipline. But when I talk to my colleagues, when I talk to students, they think of capitalism and poverty as going together. Right. Like the more capitalist the society, the higher the poverty. I think the story that you tell that Max Roser tells that a variety of people tell is quite the opposite. So if you heard a student or a colleague say that, right, like, you know, capitalism and poverty, ah, it's responsible for all of our ills. How would you respond to that? Well, I would ask them to try to find data series on poverty uh, around the world and on economic freedom, free markets, free trade in various countries and see if there's a correlation. Because there is one, you know, uh, all around the world, we had extreme poverty at, at levels higher than than sub-Saharan Africa today in, in the richest parts of the world just 200 years ago. Sorry to interrupt, but I have to interject here with this excerpt from your book, which really goes well uh, at this point in our conversation. This is from pages two to four of your book, Progress. Quote, when I began to shape my worldview in Sweden in the 1980s, I found modern civilization hard to stomach. Factories, highways, and supermarkets to me were a dismal sight, and modern working life seemed sheer drudgery. I associated this new global consumer culture with the problems of poverty and conflict that television brought into our living room. Instead, I dreamed of a society that put the clock back a society that lived in harmony with nature. I hadn't thought about the way people had actually lived before the Industrial Revolution, without medicines and antibiotics, safe water, sufficient food, electricity, or sanitary systems. Instead, I have thought of it more in terms of a modern excursion into the countryside. But I started reading history and traveling the world. I found I could no longer romanticize the good old days once I began to understand what they had really been like. One of the countries on which I focused my studies experienced chronic undernourishment. It was poorer, with shorter life expectancy and higher child mortality than the average sub-Saharan African country. That country was my ancestor Sweden 150 years ago. The truth is, the good old days were awful. Despite what we hear on the news and from many authorities, the great story of our era is that we are witnessing the greatest improvement in global living standards ever to take place. Poverty, malnutrition, illiteracy, child labor, and infant mortality are falling faster than at any other time in human history. Life expectancy at birth has increased more than twice as much in the last century as it did in the previous 200,000 years. The risk that any individual will be exposed to war die in a natural disaster or be subjected to dictatorship has become smaller than in any other epoch. A child born today is more likely to reach retirement age 
than his forebears were to live to their fifth birthday, end quote. All around the world, we had extreme poverty at, at levels higher than, than sub-Saharan Africa today in, in the richest parts of the world just 200 years ago. Uh, but then it started to decline quite rapidly in a few places like the Netherlands and Britain and North America. Then eventually in the late 19th century, it spread to Scandinavia and to um, uh, parts of Western Europe. And then later on in, in Japan, uh, eventually we began to see a decline in poverty in some East Asian countries in, uh, after the Second World War in South Korea, Taiwan. And then eventually in the 1980s and 1990s in places like China, India, Indonesia, Bangladesh, and so on. And what's the common denominator? It's not about uh, where they are. It's not about background, history, race, religion, beliefs. It's, uh, the only one uh, common denominator is that it happens to be the places in the moments that they began to give their people larger degrees of freedom to um, go into the kind of occupations that they chose to produce, to trade freely with the rest of the world, to get access to more diverse sources of funding from an ecosystem of financial markets. In other words, in the moments that they began to turn towards at least more of capitalism. That's the moment in time that they began to reduce poverty. Uh, but I do understand why some people think about capitalism and poverty going together. And that's, it's really the, but the, it's the opposite of the conclusion that many draw. It's the fact that we tend to take poverty for granted. It's just there. It's, it's a given. The, the poor will always be with us. That's what every belief system, every idea has, has always told us until some 200 years ago when some places began to see rapid economic growth and technological innovation, the most capitalist places. And then you began to worry about poverty, thinking that why should people still be poor? We, we can create wealth. We can become a more prosperous society. Uh, and so poverty came, start, stopped being seen as a given and began to be seen as a, a social problem that had to be dealt with. And that's actually a good thing, not a bad thing. Yeah, I can't help but think that some of this um, doom and gloom is just rising expectations. So the goalposts are moving. But um, I got to ask you this question. Uh, as somebody who studies economic inequality, racial inequality, those are my main areas of research. Um, I'm going to make a statement. And, you know, I, I, I respect your work more than I respect my own. So you can tell me why I'm wrong uh, when, I, when I say this. But uh, I hate hate the relative poverty measure uh, because I think that it hides real progress. So yeah. you mentioned world poverty. World poverty has not just gradually declined. It has drastically declined over time. U.S. poverty has drastically declined over time. Am I, am I wrong about this? Because if you look at the U.S. compared to like the Czech Republic, right, on the absolute on the, on the relative measure, sorry, the Czech Republic has like a third of our of our poverty. And you're like, wow, there's a lot of lessons we really could learn from the Czech Republic. And then you look at an absolute number and you're like, oh, no, no, no. The Czech Republic can learn something from us. So <laughs> I, I feel like I feel like some of these these measurements are, are hiding like, you know, the Gini coefficient and, and relative poverty measures. They're hiding absolute gains, like significant absolute gains. I absolutely uh, agree with you there. Um, I think that relative poverty is just a 
a labeling mistake, really. It's just uh, another way of trying to measure inequality. And then we can discuss if it's a good measure of inequality, if there are others that, that are better. But it doesn't, it's not really a measure of poverty because that's about your absolute conditions and what you can afford of the things that are important in your life. And the bizarre thing with, with relative poverty measures is that then suddenly it looks like countries that are actually having rapid economic growth and helping people to become much better off is actually doing worse because some people, because not everybody becomes richer at the same pace in, in those places. And if you just look at um relative poverty it's like you know countries like azerbaijan and east timor and, and gambia are are doing better than not just america but better than sweden and most other um, scandinavian countries as well so i think we should give that up look at relative poverty if you're interested in looking at the how you're doing on equality measures not if you're actually looking at living standards it's it's so ubiquitous, though. I mean, like even my most conservative friends who write for, you know, conservative publications, you read their work. And like a, a friend of mine who writes for a conservative publication, she was writing yeah. about uh, child poverty in the U.S. and how we lead the, the wealthy world. And I explained when I explained it to her, I sounded like a tinfoil hat conspiracy theorist. I said, no, we're not we're not leading the wealthy world on child poverty. That's really a matter of, of mismeasurement, I think. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It is. Um, and I think the reason why people are looking at it is. Because we have, we have the numbers, we have the data. It's easy to measure relative poverty because you just look at income statistics and you do the calculations. It's much more difficult to come up with what's the real um, poverty level in a country. What's, what's the absolute standard that you need to get across to not be poor anymore? And uh, so it's, I mean, it's the problem with positivism we're looking at in the places where we have the best data not where we need to find the the information and come up with better measures okay so johan so uh, i'm i i assign your book in my course so clearly i am sympathetic to your uh to your point of view uh but i gotta ask you who cares so uh, why should we care that people are doom and gloom? I mean, you even point out in your book that part of this is like a really good moral position to care about things uh, and to care about the plight of other people. So why should I care that people not just like get it wrong randomly? You, this is an important point you make in your book. It's not that people randomly get it wrong. Uh, it's that they do worse than, than, than uh, like a chimpanzee would do on just randomly getting things wrong. They're getting misinformation, right? So uh, they're getting the opposite uh, uh, a point that they should be getting from the numbers. So why should we care? Why should we care that people are, are wrong about progress? That's actually a great point because as you, as you mentioned, one reason why we're making so much progress is that we tend to look at problems and problems solved are problems forgotten. So we don't think that the world is going to end because of polio and um, we, we might bring polio back, uh, pump the brakes on that one, but uh. <laughs> oh, sure, sure. We, okay, we, we might, uh, but we worry more about present problems. And that's because, I mean, that's, it's an evolutionary strategy, right? We survive if we look at present problems and try to solve them. Uh, and that's a good thing. It's, it's good as far as it goes. But the problem is if we're just looking at the problems and despair, and think that it's hopeless and that there's nothing we can do about it, then I think there's a 
another great danger. Uh, one is complacency, uh, but the other great danger is despair. And if you think that things are hopeless, if you don't understand that we're actually, humanity is a problem-solving species, and especially in, in decentralized free societies with millions of people free to, to look at the problems and come up with their own solutions, we're great at solving problems. And we need to remember that because otherwise there is a risk that we won't uphold those institutions that will give us the, the freedom and the capacity to, to solve problems like that. So both complacency and despair are mistakes that might lead to an end to progress. And I think right now the problem in the world is not complacency. It's more like uh, sort of an excess uh, uh, pessimism about the world. And, you know, Helen Keller, the great disability rights advocate, once pointed out that no pessimist ever discovered the secret of the stars or sailed to an uncharted land or opened a new doorway for the human spirit. And that, I think, is the key. If we don't think that progress is possible, if we don't think that we can create a better tomorrow, we won't create a better tomorrow. There also seems to be a, a problem with, so, so go back to your previous answer on a previous question about capitalism and poverty. If you misunderstand how you got to this point, you are at risk of removing the mechanisms that got you that progress, right? So if you think capitalism yeah. causes poverty, when you make the point that actually it's reduced it, then you will fight against the thing that led you to reduce poverty. So you'll increase poverty, right? You could be, right. You could be misunderstanding the levers that actually are, are responsible for progress. Exactly. And that's the key. Because progress is not automatic. It's not like it just happens, whatever we do. Uh, in that case, I wouldn't have to write my books. <laughs> in that case, I could just relax and we would see progress anyway. But, you know, we've had periods in human history where we've seen the growth of, of freedom and more economic growth, technological innovation, cultural flourishing. But they ended because we saw rise the rise of authoritarianism. We saw the rise of... Uh, uh, anti-capitalist ideas and planned economies, and that has destroyed societies and economies and thro thrown people back into poverty. So it's not automatic, and that's why we have to care about progress, because there is a risk that we kick away the ladder so that people won't be able to make the same progress in the future otherwise. In my own thinking about this, and I'm not an expert in this area, and you are, so I'm going to get your feedback on this, but I can't help but think, you know, why do we have this point of view? Why are we missing, you know, the forest for the trees, all that kind of stuff? And um, I, I can only uh, my thought is this this device in our pockets that, you know, we have global media that, that tells us about everything in the entire world. We see things we never saw before. I'm seeing, you know, people getting killed by police that I never saw before. It all feels very local. It's immediate. I, I can't help but that's that's a major cause of this? Am I, am I missing another big one or, or would you, would you agree that that's a primary cause? I think that's probably the biggest one. Um, evolution is an excellent economist and, and tells us to stop caring about things that go well, because that's just keep doing that. But you have to worry about anything that could go wrong. So um, probably our ancestors who were the most worried and looked to the horizon, worried about other raiding tribes or predators or a storm, they survived and passed their genes on to us. And that was a great thing in a, um, in a dangerous world where any kind of problem could be the end of your um, 
<laughs> of your gene pool. Uh, but in a, a safer world where we live to 70 and perhaps even 80 years, where we have much lower child mortality and despite what you hear on the news, actually less like, war and crime as well, then there's a risk there. And especially with a global media that never sleeps and they'll always find worries and problems somewhere in the world. There's always this sort of homicidal axe-wielding maniac somewhere in the world, and that, that will top the news cycle everywhere. So we will always get our uh, exaggerated sense of the world going to the dogs, and I think that's an important part of it. Uh, but another thing that we also got from our ancestors, I am afraid, is we. it's very difficult for us to understand that the world can be a positive-sum game, because most of our prehistory has been spent in a world where we didn't create more, much more resources. We didn't have economic growth. We didn't have much more uh, economic, uh, technological innovation. You know, archaeologists still talk about this axe is a new axe when it's like uh, 5,000 years old or something like that. So if you don't have that, well, then if you are to make much more progress, and it's probably by stealing from others and taking from others and, and destroying the other tribe, unfortunately. Uh, so we're very much attuned to tribalism and tribal thought and, and that the us and them and trying to um, do anything to make sure that our group will, will prosper and benefit. And then that neglects this greatest uh, accomplishment over the past 200 years, the fact that we've created institutions like the rule of law and liberal democracies and uh, market economies where we actually uh, make sure that deals don't happen unless both parties think that it's acceptable, uh, unless they think that they would actually both benefit from it. And that unleashes so much human creativity in the service of the greater good, creating more technological capacity and economic possibility that we will all prosper from. It's great, but it's incredibly difficult for our minds to, to, to wrap our minds around that fact. So that's why we need, we can't trust our instincts. We have to study history and economics and human relationships and sociology to, to understand where, where we're going and where we come from. So happy that we were joined by Johan Norberg. He's got a number of really, really thought-provoking books. Uh, I love Progress, 10 Reasons to Look Forward to the Future. He's got a new great book out called A Capitalist Manifesto, uh, a number of others. Again, really thought-provoking stuff. I think really important reads. Thank you so much for discussing them with us today. Thank you very much, Lawrence. That was a pleasure. All right. Before we go, I just want to say that uh, the music you've been hearing, the Christmas music you've been hearing today, actually comes from a Shippensburg University student, Piper Cole. And she's actually joining me at the end of the show here to introduce the final selection. So, Piper, welcome to the show. Hi, it's great to be here. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, indeed. Are you uh, you headed? So you're, you're leaving campus uh, tomorrow, I believe. Where are you headed? I am. I'm headed back home to right outside of the Philly area. I'm from Abington, Pennsylvania, if anybody knows where that is. How long of a drive is that for you? About two hours. 
So, uh, are you a fast driver, a slow driver? Um, I would say I'm a safe driver. Safe driver. Good. (laughs) So your, your mom's listening to this, I guess is why you're saying that probably. Yeah, of course. (laughs) All right. Well, you are playing us out today, Piper. So, uh, why don't you introduce this last song for us? All right, everyone. This is Silent Night by Piper Cull, and I hope you have a very Merry Christmas.